Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's the Thing Though. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal and Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how's it going? How are you? I'm okay. I'm not too bad. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm keen to be recording and talking. How are you? I'm good. I'm like, I don't know if it's iron deficiency. I think it's iron deficiency. Good chance. But yeah. I've been like, I feel like I've been feeling sleepy at all times for like the last week. I'm sleepy. I'm tired. And it's ridiculous because I've only been awake for about two hours. So I should be wide awake. You know, maybe you need some, some B12. Yeah, look, it's probably the iron deficiency. I haven't been taking my iron pills in like a year, <laughs> but like <laughs> which yeah. were prescribed to you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I eat like spinach, and I, I feel like I have a decently balanced. I mean, obviously, I'm like mostly vegan, but I feel like I balance it out and I try to eat well. But I think I should probably get back on those iron pills because I am tired. But aside from that. I'm good. Also keen to be back. We obviously took last week off because we are going to start recording the podcast fortnightly. Oh, I'm very sorry to our listeners who, you know, wait every week for our little, little podcast that comes out on Wednesdays. But I think I'm just feeling really burnt out, to be honest, like moving into the full time working sphere and then maintaining the podcast weekly is just kind of becoming too difficult especially because like I want the podcast episodes to be good and I feel like back when I was I'm not really working too much or I was studying like we had the time to really research our episodes and kind of do a deep dive and sometimes we would record for like three hours and then edit it down and they were they were good episodes that I was proud of and thought we'd you know really nailed and I feel like lately it's kind of just like we never have enough time to work on the podcast episodes and I don't want them to be rushed or half-assed or like not well-researched. I want them to be good. I want to be proud of our work. So I think the answer to that, because I haven't been feeling like super happy, to be honest, with like just the amount of time I've been allocating to research, I feel like I could be doing better. So yeah, I'm always happy with the episodes, but it's always like if we just had, you know, that extra day, Yeah, it could be like something I'm super duper. Exactly. It's like if I just had a little bit of extra time, I feel like I could be hitting that mark that I want to hit. Um, they're still they're still good either way, but like there is that extra step that I want, and we used I feel like we used to do that pretty well. Mm. Like some of our older episodes are really in depth, and they've been a bit shorter lately as well. And I kind of want to go back into those like long deep dive kind of episodes. So from today onwards, oh, for you guys it'll be Wednesday. The episodes will be coming out fortnightly. I think that'll give us enough time in between episodes to like actually really research the way we want to. I'm excited, to be honest. Yeah, I'm actually too. excited. I'm also really excited to have some more mornings to myself. Mm. <laughs> it's like, you know, because I work, I mean, I work the night shift, which a lot of you guys already know. And so we do the podcast in the morning and then I start work pretty much immediately after we finish recording. And that means sometimes I'm working for like 12 hours. So <laughs> it'll be really nice to like 
have some more mornings where I'm just chilling. I think it's the right move, and I think the 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 show will be better because of it. Me too. But yeah, aside from that, like I mean, things are pretty wild up in Sydney. <laughs> mm. We're still under lockdown. Oh yeah, because we didn't do a podcast episode last week, so we didn't get to talk about the fact that our lockdown has been extended for another month, and from now on, that it's going to be reviewed on a month to month basis, which just terrifies me. So it's not like. If things get better, they'll only extend it by a week. Like things will be extended by the month. So if sh- we don't have our shit together by the end of August, we will be in lockdown till the end of September, and that can't happen because it's my birthday and I really want to have a birthday party. So everybody get fucking vaccinated right now, please. <laughs> for me, I just want to have a housewarming for my nice apartment. <sighs> so sad, but yeah, things are pretty shit here. Like. A couple of days ago, I think we had 237 or 239 new cases overnight, which was like breaking records from original 2020 pandemic. It's gotten marginally better. Today, there were only 199 cases overnight, which I feel like doesn't sound celebratory, but like any news is good news at this point. I'm just, I'm definitely getting a bit stir crazy. I don't know. Being at home is, I think, starting to actually get to me a little bit now. Yeah. In week five of lockdown. Right. Well, hopefully it all clears up. Hopefully, everybody, if you can get vaccinated, please, please get vaccinated. I have had my first jab. Most of my friends have had their first jab. Mitch will hopefully get his first jab soon. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we just, I just want to take a moment to really encourage everybody in general, but also especially if you're in Sydney and if you can get vaccinated to please get vaccinated for me. For Saliha. Just for me. Yeah. (laughs) I do have some more follow up. That is also still COVID related. I'm so sorry, but that's just my entire life right now. So we're going to have to talk about COVID a bit more. I'm sure everyone is sick of hearing about it. I'm sick of experiencing it, but here we are. There was some anti-lockdown protests last week that I wanted to talk about. I did put up a post to my Instagram about it. So some of you may have already seen that. But basically what happened is a bunch of people, and by a bunch, I mean like literally thousands of people, took to Sydney CBD to protest the fact that we are under lockdown. And a lot of those people were not wearing masks and it was not a very COVID safe protest. And also it was, I mean, I think kind of ridiculous because like literally the only way we are going to get this to go away is by locking down. And then everybody is out there preaching freedom and how the government can't do this to us and they're oppressing us and blah, 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 blah. It was very disheartening to see that, to be honest, as somebody who's fucking sick of lockdown as well. Like nobody is enjoying this. None of us are having fun. It's just the necessary thing to do to get out of this mess. But there's been a few kind of conversations, but a discourse around these protests that I wanted to bring up because I think they're quite important and also relevant like to us as like a group of people. The first one is about police powers surrounding these protests because a lot of people have been kind of calling for more police powers to deal with these protesters. And I like I get it in the sense of, yes, this is fucking annoying and frustrating and fuck these people for ruining for the rest of us. But like, aren't we all supposed to be ACAB? I'm really not loving how many people that are typically you know, ACAB and against police powers and police violence against protesters now calling for it because of the anti-lockdown protests. 
Obviously, we all disagree with the anti-lockdown protests. Obviously, they were irresponsible. But I don't think that this calls for more police powers. And I also think we need to acknowledge the fact that anything cops will do to anti-lockdown protesters, they'll also do to Black Lives Matter protesters and to Free Palestine protesters and to Stop Black Deaths in Custody protesters. Like, to them, we're all just protesters. And I don't think they really differentiate whether we're, like, like what kind of political spectrum we're on. If you're doing an unlawful protest, police will fuck you up. And I just think that, like, it's within our own best interest as, like, left-wing people that protest to not want the anti-lockdown protesters to be brutalized by the police. You don't have to be on their side and you don't have to agree with them and we can all shit on them in the comments and in the DMs. But let's not want police to have more powers. Let's not encourage people to report their neighbors to the cops. Let's not encourage the surveillance society. I just feel like that is going to do more harm than good in the long run. And the same people that are snitching on each other for the anti-lockdown protest will also snitch on you for a Black Lives Matter protest. Let's have some more communal solidarity for like people that will be adversely impacted by this in the future, namely people of color that already get fucked up by cops at protests. Which kind of brings me to the second part as well of the stuff that I wanted to say around this protest. There's a lot of discussion around how a lot of like marginalized communities and particularly migrant communities and people of color are part of like these conspiracies and anti-vaxxer narratives and anti-lockdown narratives. And I think that is like allowing the rise of racism, which I find quite unacceptable, obviously. But also just there's this frustrating thing because the people who are leading a lot of these protests are like kind of outright white privilege vibes, right? There's a lot of like white anti-vaxxer mums that are calling for people to be anti-lockdown and anti-vaxxers and not really believe the government and blah, blah, blah. And I just feel like they're really taking advantage of like the very genuine and understandable distrust that marginalized people have of the Australian government or and governments in general like a lot of marginalized communities especially in like western sydney especially in areas that are heavily policed and that are used to being thrown under the bus and scapegoated by the government are like going to be distrustful of the government like it makes sense that they feel that way and i think that a lot of outrights are taking advantage of that vulnerability and radicalizing these communities towards like anti-lockdown ideology. And it's like dangerous and scary, but I also think that like we kind of need to be conscious of that. Let's be conscious of the varying sociopolitical factors that lead people to become radicalized like that. Like let's think about the fact that there is a difference between like an ethnic migrant family attending this protest and like some white North Shore kid attending this protest. There are very different reasons that they're there. And I think one group is radicalizing the other group and then scapegoating them. Yeah, whenever we see these sort of conservative ideologies gaining currency, it's always mostly for a reason. And I'm not talking about like the white supremacist fashy shit, like that stuff can just fuck off. But- I feel like when we see this anti-lockdown stuff, there is a glimmer of, of reality and a glimmer of truth that I think does show through. And I think the way they're expressing it is misguided. But I think people recognize that something is deeply wrong and something needs to be fixed. And maybe they don't quite, I mean, we don't agree on obviously what needs to be fixed. And I, and I think they're wrong. But that dissent and that discontent attitude is coming from from somewhere real. Yeah, I think a lot of those communities are anti-establishment because they recognize 
that the police response towards them is disproportionate. They recognize that the government is racist towards them. Like, it's a natural distrust that ideally would be channeled towards anti-capitalism and towards, like, fighting white supremacy and fascism. But, like, a lot of these communities don't really have the class consciousness or the, like, like, just the understanding of, like, what the fuck is going on on a deeper level to channel it that way. And then the wrong people are finding them and telling them where to channel that frustration. So I just think, like, yes, fuck the protesters, but also let's not be reductive when we talk about them and let's not pretend that they're all just right-wing white people that we're snitching on to the cops because there are very fucking different repercussions between snitching on a white kid from the North Shore and snitching on an Arab guy from Western in Sydney one is going to experience a far more heavy-handed approach by the cops once they're caught some people are going to deal with this with much harsher consequences based on race and I think that we should still have some solidarity with ethnic communities even when we don't have the same political opinions because they're still oppressed and you're still potentially endangering them into racialized violence yeah it sort of reminds me of like 2016 and the the rise of Trump in middle America uh, where it's like these working class people are acknowledging that working conditions and pay are getting worse and they realize that something is wrong and they're correct, something is wrong. But sadly, their attention has been drawn to the to the wrong ideology in the wrong place. Mm. And I feel like it's the same thing going on here. Yeah. And yeah, it is just concerning because I think it's kind of like after Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, I think a lot of like white leftists really kind of understood the danger of calling the cops on like black people even if they're committing a crime because you could get them killed right and there was that like consciousness i think was really good and i'm noticing a lot of it go down the drain now when people are calling the cops on marginalized over policed ethnic communities for attending lockdown protests and it's like you don't know what you're condemning that person to let's not do that your solidarity is still with working class people even when they're doing fucked up shit it's definitely with them over the police and I guess the last thing I wanted to talk about in uh, follow-up, which is also still kind of re- well, immediately relevant, actually, is the fact that uh, the army has just been deployed into Western Sydney specifically to monitor the lockdown and help the police like enforce it, which is obviously fucked. Like, I think we all kind of know it's fucked, but I just kind of wanted to reiterate why it's fucked. Because I've seen some people be like, oh, well, if you just don't go outside, it shouldn't be a problem. Like, why are you guys upset about the military being in Western Sydney? If you don't break the rules, then you shouldn't be afraid of anything. And I just think, again, it's really reductive because people are going to need to go out for things. Like, it's going to happen. Like, you know, you might go out for the shops. You might need to go out. There's a lot of, like, family communities in these areas. Somebody might need to drop off medication to the grandparents' house. You know, there are reasons to leave the house that are perfectly understandable. But we have police that are kind of known for using their discretionary powers badly <laughs> and abusing them towards these marginalized communities that have, you know, historically been fucking abused by cops and i just think that do you think cops give a shit half the time when you have a good reason like everybody is kind of scared of being caught breaking the law when none of us are breaking the law and that should tell you enough about like how scary it must be to have military walking around i was just talking to one of my coworkers who lives in like the eastern suburbs in sydney like quite privileged wealthy area and she like wasn't breaking the law and was driving to like I don't know, shops or something with her single bubble person. Like they're in a single bubble together. Nothing they're doing is unlawful. And she was like just terrified of being pulled over by the cops because she was like, oh my God, like, you know, what if they ask me what we're doing? Like, what if they don't believe me? What if they think I'm lying? And she was not doing anything unlawful. And she's in like a wealthy, privileged white area. And I think like 
if people are feeling that way and they're like not targeted and the the chances of them getting in trouble by the cops is like fucking minuscule. Imagine the terror you must feel living in Western Sydney as an ethnic person that you know historically the authorities will target. And like because a lot of the COVID rules are vague, like even now, I mean, there's so many things that Mitch and I aren't even sure we're allowed to do. He's allowed to be here as my internet partner, but I don't think we're allowed to be in the car at the same time. You know, like I'm not sure if like it's kind of vague. I'm not sure if we're allowed to carpool, but he's definitely allowed to sleep here, which kind of makes no sense. And it's confusing. And like there's a lot of vagueness and people are scared about like not having the correct answers because we don't fucking have the correct answers and then getting in trouble by the cops and the military just escalating the situation. Um, I wrote an article for it for Pedestrian TV, which I'll link in the description below. But yeah, it's just like, it's, this isn't about breaking the law. This isn't about crime. This is just about intimidation. It's about targeting. It's about the disenfranchisement of a community that is already scared and distrustful and like has seen the government fuck them up. And then you know what? No wonder these people end up going to anti-lockdown protests. Now, I was just going to say, I mean, the increasing military presence is something that these anti-lockdown protesters are very concerned about. And again, it's like, yeah, that is something to be concerned about. But I think where they get it wrong is that they see this as sort of an isolated COVID issue when really an authoritarian militant state has been in the works and being developed over the past however many decades. Yeah, like COVID was just kind of a convenient reason for our police to increase their powers. Like they're kind of, the conspiracies are heading in the wrong direction. Yeah, COVID just sort of shows how all these institutions really work. It it sort of suspends everything and and lets you see the cogs behind the machine. Yeah, I actually saw like, I think a tweet or something the other day that was just saying how COVID really brought a lot of like the inequalities in society to the forefront. Like it really exposed a lot of the fucked up things in society. There are so many things that we weren't talking about that we are now because of COVID because now we're seeing it in plain sight. But unfortunately, a lot of people are being radicalized to the wrong end of the political spectrum. But yeah, I just, it's concerning. The police powers are concerning. The military is concerning. The extreme like rise of anti-lockdown, anti-vaxxer and like COVID conspiracy kind of corners is just, all of it is terrifying. But I just think that like, I know it's frustrating. I know it's upsetting to see people break the rules. I know it's like makes you angry because we're all doing the right thing and we're still getting fucked over. But like, let's not stoop to racism and let's not forget who our actual enemies are. It's not other working class people. It is like the government and the military, not because they put us under a lockdown, but because of the other stuff that they did. And we like shouldn't forget that. Let's not become suddenly friends with cops because they're fucking up anti-lockdown protesters. I don't think we should do that. One more piece of follow-up is uh, we did the episode on the Olympics uh, a few weeks ago, and I feel like I am a hypocrite. (laughs) I feel like I've never, ever had an interest in sports in my life, but I've been really enjoying having the Olympics on in the background. It's just been like a comforting thing over the past week. No, I totally get it, though, because it's something exciting, and we're all locked in our homes, and lockdown is depressing, and there's just something so exhilarating about watching these people do amazing things, and, like, everybody is rallied behind them, and we're all kind of in this together, and it's, like, so communal. I I, I totally get why suddenly watching the Olympics is so much fun. But I'm conflicted. I'm so conflicted about my enjoyment for the Olympics. I mean, firstly, I don't really know what's happening half the time in most (laughs) sports, but it's just fun to watch. But- I feel like there's so much problematic 
and complicated stuff surrounding the Olympics. I mean, in that episode that we did, mm. you know, like so much of the Olympics. Or the white fucking supremacy. Or the, the white supremacy. And also like, I mean, it's a big talking point now, but, you know, so much of the Olympics is objectifying the women in the costumes. Yes, you that's really been see. a big one lately. Just yeah, exactly. like the double standards and the way women are expected to dress versus or, anyone else. Also just uh, the Olympics happening now and the big argument of whether or not the Olympics should even be happening. I think in Japan- a majority of the population there don't think the the Olympics should yeah, be happening now. Yeah, it's scary for them. I mean, they mostly got COVID under control and then a bunch of people from other countries, some like ours, which have had fucking terrible cases lately, have just, you know, entered their country and they're probably scared about a COVID spread, which is completely reasonable. Yeah, so I feel like I shouldn't be getting enjoyment out of this. And even lastly, uh, something interesting and also sort of terrifying about the Olympics is what it does to these cityscapes and to these communities mm, yes. once it happens. It, it, it's really interesting. You can look up on the internet, just search uh, Olympic wasteland and you'll see all of these abandoned Olympic facilities that you know billions of dollars get put into them. And once the Olympics is over, they just sort of never get used again and become overrun. Nature mm. takes over. There's like graffiti everywhere. An argument for the Olympics and how much money is put into the Olympics is that it's really good for the local economy. Like, there's bringing so much tourism, uh, so much development, uh, all this new infrastructure is being built. But the reality is, is that it's not infrastructure that actually benefits the society or the community there. It's not productive infrastructure. It's just billions of dollars being put into something which essentially goes to waste. And then now suddenly that's all being perturbed by my enjoyment <laughs> of watching these people with hockey sticks run around a big big field that I don't you're really like understand. wow my emotions have betrayed me i know i know i totally get it because mitch and i were also talking the other day about like nationalism and the olympics and how the olympics literally relies on patriotism and nationalism to exist because you have to care about your team and you have to care about your country for this to happen because that's just the way that it's structured and as people that, that are anti-nationalism and anti-patriotism and generally don't really identify as like oh yeah australian pride or whatever and now like getting sucked into it being like yes go australia win this you know blah blah blah. and it's yeah it's definitely fucked it's like one of those things where you get sucked in and it's so good and it's so fun and then you just have this like moment where you're like wow none of this aligns with me politically (laughs) (laughs) yeah look i just think it's one of those things where like you can acknowledge and discuss how problematic it is and then still enjoy it when it's on it's the same way that i like can acknowledge how fucked harry potter is and love the movies like you can have critical discourse about something that is still fun to watch i agree anyways let's get into our topic today which is unfortunately far less fun and exciting than the olympics uh it's quite sad actually so this episode um is being prompted by a really tragic incident that happened in India. Oh, just a trigger warning as well, a content warning. I will be discussing like domestic violence and the murder of women. Not very graphically, but it is just going to be part of the topic today. But an Indian teenager was reportedly, and I have to say reportedly and allegedly because this has gone to court, but an Indian teenager was reportedly beaten to death by her male relatives because she was wearing jeans. So apparently... What has happened is that she was wearing jeans for some, like, religious activities and her family, um, like her in-laws and her grandfathers and male uncles, uh, had a problem with that and told her not to. And then she was arguing with them because she wanted to wear jeans and they were telling her to wear traditional clothing. And then they allegedly beat her with sticks, like multiple male adult family members beat her quite severely 
and then they bundled her up into a rickshaw and they said they were going to take her to the hospital and her mother was really, really worried about her because they wouldn't let her come and she was really scared. And so she alerted her family members to go to the hospital to meet the daughter there and keep her safe and she never arrived. And then the next day, uh, her body was found hung from a bridge. So it's really horrific and really sad and it's making headlines everywhere. And one of our lovely listeners messaged me asking me to talk about it and to talk about patriarchy in culture and the way misogyny exists, you know, not just like in the West, but in like ethnic communities, misogyny and ethnic communities specifically. And, you know, my knee-jerk reaction to that was like, yes, this is a huge issue, but I'm also concerned about covering it because as people who come from communities where the West likes to pretend that we are all violent, misogynistic, dangerous to women in order to colonize us, sometimes we don't like talking about these things because we don't want to validate like white racism. And then I was like, you know what? But that's kind of fucked that I, do- I feel uncomfortable or I'm concerned about discussing this really real issue because of what white people are going to say. And I thought that in itself was something worth talking about. So today I guess we're going to talk about like the way whiteness can weaponize misogyny in ethnic cultures in order to oppress us. That's what we're going to talk about today. Obviously what happened to uh, this Indian teenage girl is tragic and it's certainly not unique. I feel like I see a story every week about really horrible ways that women are beaten, assaulted, murdered by their family members, by their fathers and brothers and cousins. I read a story not that long ago about some girls who were beaten by their father for having a phone call with a male cousin. And this, you know, this is, these are stories that are happening in India and in Pakistan in like religious countries, specifically um, with India, like either Hindu communities or Muslim communities. And it's really hard to talk about violence and domestic violence in the Muslim community publicly because it's not something we don't talk about at all. I guarantee you, like me and like my ethnic friends, me and like the other women of color in my life will spend significant amounts of time talking about the misogyny that we experience as women in these communities, the misogyny that we have to fight against all the time, the fights and arguments that we get into. And I feel like we often treat it as a very private conversation. It's very much a like, don't air your dirty laundry, don't talk about this to other people, what are they going to say about us? Which is a symptom of like growing up, you know, at least for me in kind of like a Desi community It was always like, what will people say? What will people say? Don't talk about things in public. Don't talk about your problems in public. But I realized we've internalized that quite deeply, even when we're like really leftist, anti-capitalist, anti-white supremacist, obviously feminist, obviously, you know, anti-patriarchy. And yet there's still a hesitance to discuss these violent things that happen to women. And I feel like I really want to deep dive on that today. And I don't want that to overshadow what is happening to these girls, But I also just don't really know what I can do to help them by just deeply discussing the violence that they're experiencing. I just feel like that's a really triggering thing to talk about. And I don't want to sit here and detail all the stories of like mutilation and violence that women experience at the hands of their male relatives. I think a more productive conversation is about how we can talk about that 
more healthily and how that can maybe spur some change. Yeah, I was going to say it's about how first we need to sort of overcome this other part and then we can have sort of productive conversations exactly. about this really tragic, awful stuff. Yeah, exactly. Because it is obviously really fucking sad. And honestly, it was a bit triggering, like just reading about all of this stuff before recording this episode. Like I was just reading all these stories about all these women getting like raped and murdered And it's fucking hard to read and I can't imagine what it's like when that's you or your family member experiencing that. You know, the conversations that this evokes around patriarchy and culture is different depending on who you're talking to. In the community, either it's women being outraged and upset that this is still happening to them. You know, there's protests in India right now about domestic violence against women and the way that women are still treated like second-class citizens, like animals, like people that don't have agency or rights. And, I mean, that's happening fucking everywhere. Like, women are treated like this everywhere. But these are, like, protests happening in India right now. And then there's the conversations around, like, for example, this particular story in the West. I've read quite a few articles uh, just trying to understand what was going on. And the difference in the way certain publications discuss this is actually quite astounding. I read, like, I can't even tell you which publications are which anymore because I just read so many articles. But some of them just report it straight and they're just like, this happened. It's pretty fucked. This is what the mother said. This is what the police are doing. This is the legal status of the people involved. And then other articles really want to draw a narrative around it and it'll, like, kind of be a bit racist. Like, there were some articles that I was reading talking about how, like, India is just a violent and unsafe place for women. And it's like... Maybe, but there's just something icky about a white Western publication saying that. And this is kind of where my defensiveness and hesitancy comes in. Because, yes, it's true. Women are experiencing fucking horrific things. But also, I don't want to hear that criticism from white men. I don't want to hear that criticism from the West, especially when they, like, colonized India and probably are responsible for a lot of their own violence against Indian women. And that's probably, like, the main reason why we don't like talking about these things because I we don't want to admit that there may be a relationship between domestic violence and religion and culture. And, like, I mean, there may also may not be, but my point is we don't really want to have those uncomfortable conversations. Like, we don't really want to say this happened because they're Muslim or this happened because they're Indian or this happened because they're Hindu. We don't really want to validate ideas about us being backwards and violent. I see this a lot with Muslim women. There is a lot of violence in the Muslim community. I doubt it's more than every other community. I think there's a lot of domestic violence everywhere. Um, But yes, I have definitely heard of and met Muslim men who beat their wives and abuse their daughters and then claim that they can do so because of religion, because they have some divine right to treat women like property. And as a Muslim woman, I obviously don't fucking think that's true. And there is diversity in religion and the way people practice it. But like, yeah, there is a lot of misogyny in the Muslim community. And I hate talking about it, to be honest, because like as somebody who is Muslim and also hijab wearing, so I'm easily identified as a Muslim. I get a lot of people asking me how I can be Muslim when Muslim men do or believe these things. 
And it often like reflects their behavior back on me. And I am seen as like being partially responsible because like, how can you be Muslim? How can you support this religion when it's being used to hurt women like you? Which is fucking ridiculous question to ask because like, I'm not responsible for anything that anybody else does. But yeah, it happens all the time, especially when I'm in white dominated spaces, when majority of my friends are not Muslim. And when I'm in a work, I'm like, I'm the only Muslim person in most of my, actually, I think I've been the only Muslim person in all of my workplaces. Like I'm used to these things happening to me and I'm fucking sick of these conversations. I'm sick of having to defend myself. I'm sick of having to defend every other Muslim that isn't violent (laughs) like I'm sick of having to constantly act like I have to constantly have a disclaimer I constantly have to be like oh like yes some people do that but also here is a list of every single Muslim person that is a decent person I shouldn't have to do that and so when these conversations come up like when conversations around for example this Indian girl being murdered allegedly by her family the questions that people ask especially in the west are are these religions and cultures violent? Like, are they, is it the culture? Is it the religion? Is it the men? Is it inherent? Is it just what they're like over there? And like, no, I don't think so. I think misogynistic men twist and use religion and culture as a means to justify their violence. But no one's going to give a shit that I think that. And then it just kind of takes away from the conversation, right? The conversation becomes about me justifying my cultural religion's existence. And we're not even really talking about the women that got hurt anymore. And it's just messy. It's just messy. And it's, you know, why I kind of initially felt hesitance to even talk about this. Because you know what? There are plenty of white Anglo-Saxon men of both Christian or atheist beliefs who also abuse women. There's incels that shoot up women for not wanting to date them. There's conservatives who want to remove women's bodily autonomy and give them the death sentence for having a miscarriage in America. You know, there's no shortage of men who want to hurt women. And talking about domestic violence in Australia and in America and in white countries is really easy because it doesn't reflect on a marginalized community. White men aren't marginalized. But there's this hesitancy that dirty people feel in the West when talking about these things in our countries because we don't want to fuel the white saviorism and racism. You know, if we look at the reasons historically that black men have been murdered, for example, like it's often been done in the name of white women. It's often been done in the in the name of saving white women from like the violence of black men. And it's the same everywhere. Like a lot of colonization was justified by, oh, we have to help these women. Like how many American troops were deployed into Afghanistan to protect these Muslim women from the Taliban? And then those Muslim women are getting raped by American soldiers. Like it's everywhere. All the time, the demonization of ethnic or religious men with the intention to then colonize the land and be racist and have this fucking white saviorism conflict. Like, it's so fucked because, yes, brown women are oppressed and, like, yes, they are being abused. But, like, instead of having conversations about how to uplift brown women to be safe or, like, ways that we can kind of help them without fucking colonizing them just don't seem to happen in the West, like, in Australia. Like, the narrative right now around this Indian teenager, it's very white savior. And it's very, like, colonizer. It's very, look at these barbaric Indians. It's racist, right? It's racist. And I don't want to fuel anti-Indian racism. And you know what? Brown men experience a lot of racism because of like fucked up shit like this, you know, I can guarantee that there are brown Muslim men in my family that have experienced racism because people have assumed 
that they are violent misogynists that hurt women because they're brown and they're Muslim and that's the reputation that brown Muslim people have in the West. And I just like, I don't want to fuel colonizer logic. I don't want to validate their racist stereotypes. Brown men being violent patriarchs is a racist stereotype. And then brown men go out and be fucking misogynistic patriarchs that kill women. And now I'm like, fuck, I want that woman to get justice. I want women to get justice. I also don't want white people to be racist to brown men because of this. It's the same way that when like a Muslim terrorist goes out and bombs, I don't know, like a city in France. And now I'm like, yeah, that's fucked. But also now I need to defend every other Muslim person. And it's like, I'm in a really complicated position right now because everybody wants me to talk about this thing that happened, but how do I do it without also villainizing everybody else in this marginalized community that I know is going to get villainized? And I think also like part of my hesitancy to have these conversations is because it ties into some problematic discourse I've seen on intersectionality. So I'm going to go on a slight tangent, but I think it's really relevant. I've been seeing a lot of TikToks by white gay men Uh, who are, you know, like left-wing or woke or whatever, but like liberal woke, where they kind of are trying to teach their followers about intersectionality. And there's a lot of of buzzwords and it's very like white feminist vibes. But I saw this one particular TikTok, which I've literally been thinking about every day since I saw it, where a white man who was very loved for his educational left-wing videos said that white women, gay white men and black or brown men are all one step away from the top of the chain. Like he was trying to explain intersectionality and it was like, you know, white men are at the top and there's white women who like are oppressed maybe by being women, but not by being white, they have white privilege. And then there's white gay men who might be oppressed because they're gay, but they're still white men. So they have white male privilege. And then he said, and then there's black men who, you know, might be oppressed because they're black, but they have male privilege. And that they're, they're all, all these groups, so black men, white women and white gay men are all one degree of separation from the privileges of like the white man from like the top of the hierarchy. That is just fucking false information. Like it's just not true, which I'll explain. But seeing that shit again just fuels my hesitancy to talk about these issues because men of color and particularly black men are not one degree of separation from the top of like the food chain, especially black men. I mean, men of color do experience gendered violence that white men don't and particularly black men, kind of like how women of color do. And I know that sounds really confusing, but- They just manifest differently. I feel like I could do a whole fucking episode on gendered violence against black men in particular, but I won't. Instead, I will try and summarize it really quickly for you. I think we need to do a whole episode on on this specifically, this this hierarchy of identity politics. Identity. I know we should do an identity politics episode, but basically black men experience gendered violence. The vision that we have of gendered violence is often like against women specifically, but a lot of the things that get black men hurt are gendered violence, hyper-masculinization of black men and the idea that they're violent, brutal or savage is gendered violence because they don't experience that because they are just black. They experience that because they are black men specifically. This is at the specific intersection of being black and being a man. And like we talked about in the Olympics, gender itself is a racialized construct. The idea of masculinity and femininity is actually rooted in white supremacy. We had a really good discussion about this in our Olympics episode, so check it out if you haven't already. But gender separation or like the differences in the way that gender manifests and the idea that genders have inherent characteristics is white supremacist. So then when we take that and we think about the fact that black men are villainized and masculinized 
and made out to be like they are dangerous and inherently going to hurt women or rape women. Like this is a very common narrative, a racist stereotype of black men. That doesn't just exist because they are men. White men don't experience that targeting. White men are not seen that way. So it's not just because black men are men. It's because they are black and they are men. Exactly. Therefore, it is actually gendered violence because black men then get murdered. They get lynched. They get shot. They are victims of police brutality. White women often call the cops on black men and get them murdered for doing nothing because it's actually gendered violence. It is violence that they are experiencing because they are black men in particular. So if black men can experience gendered violence, so they can experience violence not just because they are black, but also because they are men and specifically black men, they're actually not one degree of separation away from the white man. They are two degrees of separation away from the white man, like women of color. And I feel a solidarity towards men of color for this reason, because men of color do experience gendered violence. And it's something that I think a lot of white people don't understand because it's not just like a point system, you know, with like intersectionality. It's not like a little ladder. And then it's, it's, it's like a linear, like white men, white women, gay men, black men. Like it's not a fucking linear thing. That's not how intersectionality works. Everybody experiences oppression in different ways. And not all men have male privilege. White men experience male privilege in the West. Black men don't experience a privilege for their gender. If anything, they're more likely to experience violence and be murdered because they're men. Black men are in danger because they're black men. And the dismissal of that is fucking problematic. This is the problem with a lot of identity politics. Yeah, I just want to emphasize what you're saying. I feel like, because what you're describing is intersectionality, whereas what this TikToker is describing is not intersectionality, even though it may seem like it. Because the way he's describing identity is like it's uh, a combination of traits, as in you add like a bit of black, you add a bit of man. But that's not intersectional because it still thinks of the person as being a series of traits and not a specific intersection of these traits. Is that you have a bit of black, you have a bit of man. No, actually, you're a black man, for example. And that is completely... It's, it's not quantitative. It's a qualitative difference. Yes. It's incredibly specific. Like white men and black men do not have... Like, on paper, if we went by his definition of intersectionality, like, white men and black men would have almost the same experiences. And the only difference in their experiences would be non-gendered racial violence, right? That would be the only difference between a black man and a white man is maybe the black man gets called the N-word. Like, that's the only difference. But that's not true. There is a myriad of violence and different kinds of racisms that a black man will experience, that a white man never will. They're not fucking similar in male privilege and black men are not better off for being men. They're still oppressed. And them being men doesn't protect them from any oppression. They don't, they don't have male privilege. The reason I've gone on this whole tangent is because this is why I feel protective of men of color and this is why I'm scared to often have public conversations about gendered violence in ethnic communities. I'm scared to have these conversations when I have a white audience because a lot of our audience, this podcast, you know, are white and that's fine. And, uh, you know, that's not like a problem, but it's like I'm so scared that some white person is going to listen to me talk about violence in India against women, and then they're going to use that to fuel their racism, their underlying racism. Because again, people often don't even know that they're racist. Like a lot of white people, like well-meaning, left-leaning white people think they're helping us. 
and they want to help us and they want to help women of color and they want to protect us and it's white saviorism and they might not realize that they're being racist but they are and I'm like I don't want to be responsible for a man of color getting hurt from like a white person because I have talked about violence in like India you know what I mean like it's hard because men of color experience violence and retribution for the crime of being men of color right they often pay the price for violent stereotypes about our people it's them They experience that. And I think it's hard to have these conversations as a woman of color about validating those stereotypes. And it's fucked because you know what? That's not fair to women that get murdered by these men. It's not fair to these women that I'm hesitant to talk about what happened to them because I want to protect every other man of color. Like I know it's not fair and it's kind of fucked. And that's like the symptom of living under white supremacy because I realize that it's wrong to not talk about things. We owe it to these women to talk about what happened to them and our own insecurities and fears about what this could mean for us in the West and what white people might think of us maybe aren't as important as I think they are. You know, like I'm willing to say that I should talk more about these things and I don't because I'm scared of what that could mean for men of color. And maybe that's not fucking fair to women of color that get murdered by men of color. But I think that we need to work on ways to cover these things and talk about these atrocities while still denying white people their like colonialist savages narrative, right? So I guess like we need to figure out a way to talk about these crimes where we still talk about them and we still get these women justice and we do it without throwing men of color under the bus and we do it without, you know, hurting ourselves. And the main part of that is honestly just being informed, I think, and being careful and specifically looking at the fact that There is domestic violence in every culture, but we often see white people pretend that it's something inherent to ethnic communities and then they justify their colonization and assimilation and every other fucking genocidal thing they do with that. You know, we see this a lot with indigenous communities. First Nations people obviously are suffering from intergenerational trauma. They have to cope with the decimation of their people, their land and their culture. And then there's other added factors as well, just like whatever violence was enacted upon them by colonizers, especially with like the introduction of like disease and like substances like alcohol. And then that leads to mental illnesses and suicide rates being really high. And that leads to being traumatized. And that leads to a lot of instability and depression. And then inevitably, there are going to be problems that come out in the community because of that. And that's not specific to First Nations community, but just an example of the way that colonizers have fucked us up and fucked, you know, marginalized communities up, and then violence can come out of that. And when domestic violence eventually arises in whatever community, as it does everywhere, it's used as an excuse by, like, white Australia, for example, to remove Aboriginal children from custody of their parents, to make racist assumptions about family dynamics and relationships in ethnic or First Nations communities, to cry misogyny and patriarchy. You know, First Nations men are demonised as, like, oh, fuck, what was it? Was it Sunrise that did that really fucked... I think it was Sunrise with Carrie-Anne, whatever her name is, where they pretty much said Aboriginal men are like child rapists and then they got sued for it. It was really fucked. And they used that as an excuse. And then one of the um, speakers was like, oh, this is why we have to bring the stolen generations back because we have to protect children from being raped from the- by their parents. Yeah, that part was definitely a Sunrise. Yeah. yeah. And like, this is what I mean. So like, fucked up. This is why we're so scared to talk about like violence happening in our communities Because then someone is going to go on fucking sunrise and be like, see, we need stolen generations part two. Like they don't fucking hesitate. These white people don't fucking hesitate. The moment they get an excuse to come and colonize us and remove our children and decimate our culture, they do. And I guess we need to figure out a way of like how to navigate that. Because I don't know if I'm at the place yet where I can have really deep conversations publicly 
about what's happening to these women. I do it in the DMs. I do it with other women of color. If I had a platform that only people of color listened to and no one else, I feel like I'd be more comfortable discussing misogyny and racism and the intersections of that and like how fucked it can be existing as a woman of color and how dangerous it is for us and how much we can get hurt by men of our own culture. I think I would have more honest, open conversations about that in my like safe spaces and in the DMs. So by the way, guys, if you want to talk about that stuff, you can DM me. I don't know if I am ready to have a public podcast episode discussing in-depth, you know, experiences of misogyny in like my culture and other ethnic cultures without villainizing men of color because I don't want to villainize them and I don't want to justify the gendered violence they already experienced at the hands of white supremacy. It's really hard. Like there's so much colonial gaslighting, you know? I don't want like white people to then be like in my DMs gaslighting me for being Muslim or like making me feel like I'm responsible for things or being like, oh, well then we should all band together. And you know what? Actually something else I really want to point out is I don't want white women to then come in here and think they can hate men of color as well. Because ages ago, I put up an Instagram story about this, but like a lot of white women are on that I hate all men train. And it's like, you are not allowed to hate all men because if you hate all men, you also hate men of color and that's racist. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like a lot of women of color, we talk about the violence that we experience from men of color in our cultures. And the white women will be like, see, this is why I hate all men. And it's like, you don't get to hate Pakistani men for being misogynist. You're actually being racist when you do that. You know what I mean? Like you're not, you don't experience violence from these communities. You enact violence upon these communities. So actually we don't have the solidarity that you think we have. We're actually not on the same level just because we're women. There are other elements, intersections that differentiate us. And I don't want to also give white women an excuse to further their hatred of men and men of color. So it's complicated. It's really complicated. And I guess that's what this episode is about. Like I know that some of you want me to talk in depth about this woman and her being murdered and like domestic violence in India, Pakistan. And you know what? You can DM me and I'll talk to you about it in the DMs, you know, from people who are marginalized and I'm marginalized, but I'm not going to have a public conversation to a white audience about this thing. At the moment, I don't feel comfortable doing that because I know a lot of people are going to use it to fuel their racism and I don't want to be responsible for that. I also don't think that all conversations have to be held on like, you know, an all-inclusive public stage necessarily because sometimes they require something extremely nuanced and sophisticated and not everyone is necessarily ready or or have the knowledge for that conversation and you don't want to be walking on eggshells the entire time. Yeah, like that's my issue because we have a really diverse audience from varying ethnicities, cultures, privileges. There isn't just one way that I can talk about this that will encompass all of you. There isn't. I would talk about this very differently with like brown women than I would with like a mixed audience. And so I don't feel like the podcast is the right platform for like just a deep conversation on that. So instead I thought I would use that opportunity to explain why maybe this platform is not ready for that conversation. And instead I'm happy to have individual conversations and discussions about violence, you know, against women in India, but I'm not going to have a public conversation where anybody can cherry pick what I'm talking about and then use it how they will. It's just not safe for men of color. That speaks for itself. But look, for those of you who may be feeling a bit disappointed because you really wanted to have a deep discussion on that, just DM me. I'll talk to you about it. I'm really happy to have those conversations in DMs. I think it requires a more controlled environment. Okay, well, thanks for listening. 
I think now is a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you, our lovely, lovely, lovely listeners. Specifically, we'd like to thank Pia, Sarah, Liz, Belle, and Katie. So thank you so, so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can always do a one-off donation to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mrs.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at podcast at gmail.com. And please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Cool. Thanks. Bye. Bye.